Father, we're grateful that you've brought us together this morning and fed us with the word that was heard and, and Lord, the word that we were able to actually ingest. And so we pray that you will, from your living word that enters into us by your spirit, bubble up into us wells of eternal life. And I pray, Lord, for our time together today that you will give me clarity and um, the power of your spirit. And I pray for those who are here to listen, that you will let all of us together know that you you are our great teacher. And we thank you in advance for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. I was just told before the um, couple... Before we started, that is it Dwight was that your Robert. Robert told me he was watching SEC football yesterday and saw a list of a picture of all the SEC coaches coming around. And the background music was Johnny Cash's "When the Man Comes Around." <laughs> that that's an interesting interpretation, I think, of that song. <laughs> we talked about that last week. For those of you who weren't here. Um, I, I, I often try to get some feedback from my wife about the class, and I was we were going to my parents for lunch last Sunday. So she would give me some some feedback, and she's like, "Well, is it going to get any better?" I mean, I like, <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Well, um, you know." So I'm, I'm I'm conscious this morning that things need to get better, but but the bad news is we're in Amos, you know, so that um, I'm not sure that will happen. Um, I, I'd like to do something today a little bit more hodgepodgey. Um, th- what, we're, what I conceive of this class, um, we have today and then two more weeks where we will stay in the Minor Prophets. And then the last two weeks, um, the dean, uh, Andrew, has asked me to give some thought to how we talk to our children about worship. Um, so that, that's going to be a, tr- a turn in the last um, two weeks um, and any time that I talk about things that re- are related to family life um, and parenting life, you know, I don't like doing that because I'm in the deep end of the pool drowning myself. Um, and and especially when it comes to training your kids to worship. And I've told you before, we've lifted our eyes in moments of confession in church to see several of our children just prostrate on their backs on the kneeling bench. So it's not, I mean, it's not also always a high and holy moment in our family. Um, <laughs> But I, but I hope to talk about that in some level, um, and maybe for those of you who are in the middle of it, just to commiserate with you, but to maybe think about how we begin to have a grammar in our families with children as it relates to worship. And that won't just be applied to parents, that's parents and grandparents, it's the larger sort of, and, and really a whole systemic uh, uh, thing that relates to the life of our church. You know, we got kids around here, and lots of them, and that's really important. Um, I, I heard a couple of weeks ago, uh, Joel Green, who's a pretty well-known New Testament scholar who's out at Fuller Theological Seminary, he was lecturing at Samford. And uh, Green, was his lecture was entitled, um, Suffer the Children <laughs> to Come Unto Me. And it was interesting to hear um, Green talk about how within the Gospel of Luke, you really have a complete inversion. This pertains to the, to the Minor Prophets, frankly. But a complete inversion of what we consider to be up and down. Um, the wealthy, the privileged, the, the, they're up, and then the other, the marginalized, the poor, they're down. But that's just how we tend to think naturally. And Jesus just, you know, he throws all these things into a real problem. He problematizes all of our categories for us. I mean, you get, get it. One of the reasons why people were so upset with Jesus is um, he, they knew that he was announcing the kingdom of God. 
They knew that he was having kingdom meals. I mean, isn't it stunning to see how many times Jesus is around the table eating? I mean, even to the point where his critics called him what? A glutton and a drunkard, right? I mean, you're eating and drinking so much, you're a glutton and you're a drunkard. I mean, these were kingdom meals that Jesus was having, and the wrong people were at the table, right? The wrong people were invited to that meal. So Jesus is turning things up and down. And one of the things in Green's lecture that I, I thought was very interesting, and I think it should have been intuitive, but it, really, it wasn't for me, is, um, is Jesus' engagement with children. You know, we live in a world now that's highly romanticized children, haven't we? I mean, we're in Peter Pan and Neverland world. Um, that's not the ancient world. That's not the Greco-Roman world. Um, infanticide was a common issue. Children just left out to the elements to, to die. Um, and one little phrase in Luke says, and they even brought infants to Jesus. I mean, even, even the fact that Luke is describing it the way, even infants they brought to him. I mean, the children were, they, were, they weren't um, valued. They were not commodities in the way that which we tend to think of children in our world where we romanticize them. And so here Jesus, again, takes what, we, what was in that world down and elevates it to up. No, 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 let them come unto me. I want, I want to be around the children. Let them come. Because, by the way, if your faith doesn't become like theirs, bad news for you. So you can learn something from children. So I, want to, we'll t- I don't know what we're going to do. I'm still trying to get my head around the issue myself. But that's the last two weeks of our eight-week time together. So today, I want us to get on... I guess a rocket ship blast and look quickly at Amos and then maybe do Jonah, Micah, and Nahum in one go. And then next week, I'd like to do Habakkuk um, or Habakkuk, however you'd like to say that. And then the following week, I'd like to do Malachi. Now, that's a lot left out. Zechariah, Zephaniah. I'm avoiding Zephaniah because I don't know what to do with that book yet. Um, so, uh, it's weird stuff in there. Um, but we'll do today... Um, Amos, and then Joel, I mean, Jonah, Micah, and, and Nahum. So first of all, Amos. Now, if you have Bibles, you can look there. Um, Rolf Rentdorf, a scholar I lean quite heavily on with the Minor Prophets, um, described Joel, Amos, and Obadiah together forming this um, thematic unity that emphasizes that the day of the Lord is dark. We saw this last week in Joel, did we not? The day of the Lord, the announcement of the day of the Lord is darkness, it's gloom. This is where Amos says in Amos 5.18, Why are you wanting the day of the Lord? Why are you asking for the day of the Lord to happen? Because when the day of the Lord arrives, it's not going to be good, it's going to be bad. It's going to be not light, it's going to be darkness. So why why are you hoping for this? So this is the theme that's going on throughout Joel and Amos and Obadiah, that there is darkness when the day of the Lord arrives. This is the part where I think where my wife was like, you know, let's bring a little light in here at some point, right? If there's a theme in the book of Amos, I think it might be Amos 1 verse 2. And he said, this is Amos, the Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn. And the top of Carmel, um, or of Bounty, the mountain Bounty, it withers. So, if we had to look at Amos and pick out our God in a lineup of gods, the one that we would pick out is the one that's roaring the loudest. That's our God. Um, he's a lion that roars from Zion. Um, this is a time of judgment. It's why the, the news is hard news. This time that you're in right now is a time 
of judgment. And so he goes right in from Amos 1-2 into these, into two chapters that list these oracles against the nations. Um, let's look at them just quickly. Like, um, Amos chapter 1, verse 3, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, yea, for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Verse 6, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza, yea, for four, I will not revoke the punishment. I'm adding that yea because I just remember this from the King James Version growing up. For three transgressions, yea, for four. Right. Um, verse 9, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And that goes on and on and on. Edom, Tyre, Moab, Gaza. Right? You have these lists of nations where God says, I am roaring against all of you. And the way in which this is set up literarily in Amos, it's, um, it's something that the prophets like to do, I think. I call it the prophetic bait and switch. They draw the reader in. And who is the assumed reader in this world? Well, the assumed reader is an Israelite. Either someone from the northern kingdom, Israel, or the southern kingdom, Judah. But we assume that it's an Israelite that Amos is speaking to. So when someone comes out and says, for three sins, yea, for four, against Damascus in Syria, I will not let my punishment go away. And you can hear a kind of, uh-huh, amen, right? Uh, for Tyre, they're going down too. That's right, give it to them. And then you get down to Demat, you know, to Moab and the Edom. All these are classic. They become like tropes, actually, in the minor prophets all throughout Israel's history of the enemies of God. Right. So here the prophet says all of them are going to come under God's judgment. But what's the bait and switch? The bait and switch is verse four of chapter two, and it's the last nation of seven. Thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of Judah, yea, for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And then he ends it in verse 6 by saying, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, yea, for four, I will not revoke the punishment. That's the got ya moment, right? I mean, this is the moment, um, if we can compare it to Isaiah chapter 5, um, where Isaiah begins to sing a little ditty around a fire. I mean, that's the best way in which I kind of conceive of it. The famous song of the vineyard in Isaiah 5. Isaiah says, I've got a little song I'd like to sing for you. Amos is in effect saying, I have some prophecies against the nations I'd like for you to hear. And everyone's lining up to hear that, right? I'd love to hear a little ditty that you have. I'd love to hear your words against the nations, Amos. Let's hear what, you, what God is going to do to our enemies. And in Isaiah, uh, the way in which the song goes, it's something. It's not a very good song. You know, it's, it's, it's not going to, you know, it's, it's more Elton Johnish than it is Beethoven, I think. You know, if you're going to compare them. Um, but here you have uh, Isaiah says, I, "I knew a man, and he had a vineyard, and he cleared out all the stones, and he got rid of all the weeds, and uh, and he planted his good seed. He even built a tower in the middle of it out of stone, and that's significant. This is not just a transitory tower. This isn't a tower of straw and sticks. This is a stone tower. This is going to be a vineyard that's going to be given to my children and my children's children, which is significant, by the way. You remember the story about Naboth, don't you? I mean, Naboth and his vineyard, Ahab, wanted his vineyard, and he uh, asked him, he said, I want to buy your vineyard. And Naboth said, no, you can't have my vineyard. And then he said, but I'll even give you more than it's worth. And Naboth said, I'm not going to give you my vineyard. And then Jezebel said, well, what are you so upset about? And Jezebel went and killed Naboth and gave the vineyard to Ahab. Remember that story? Why would Naboth be so 
recalcitrant. Why would he not give his vineyard over? Because it's not just a matter of monetary wealth for Naboth. This is his father's vineyard and his father's father's vineyard. If any of you have read the literature of Wendell Berry, um, you may get this sense of a, a deep connection to the land. And this was my father's land and my grandfather's land. I see this in my in-laws with my, with my wife's family. Um, there's just this deep connection to an area in upper Michigan where their family just goes back a couple generations. And you, I can sense it with my brother-in-laws. They get there and there's something about this connection to this place. Naboth was not going to give that vineyard away because this is my inheritance. This is at the core of my identity. So here you see in Isaiah's little ditty that he's making a vineyard and this vineyard, he's building a stone, a stone tower there. This is going to be for his children and his children's progeny and on and on. But what happens in the little song? A song that would make a ton of sense to the hearers. Well, he sows his very good grape seed. I don't know. He sows his cabernet, right? I don't know what it would be. He sows his good grape seeds and what comes up but rotten grapes. So then this happy little ditty around the fire, campfire, turns into the minor key. And then here's the chorus. The chorus goes something like this. So I'm going to tell you now what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I'm going to tear it up. I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to uproot it. I'm going to tear the tower down. And it's going to be nothing but a pile of heap in the middle of the, in the, middle of the, of the Judean desert. I was like, ooh, that's not a very fun song anymore. <laughs> And then the Lord says, and now tell them, Isaiah. See, this is the bait and switch. You lure them in with this little ditty. It goes to the minor key. And then the prophet says, oh, and by the way, uh, Judah, you're my vineyard. Right. I'm the one who owns the vineyard. You are my vineyard. And I'm going to overturn you. It's going to be destruction. That's, that's a hard word. This is what's going on in Amos, in effect. In effect, it's the same. All the nations, yes, yes, yes. Oh, by the way. For three sins of Judah, yea, for four, I will not remit the punishment. I will not do that. Now, that's a funny phrase, isn't it? Three, yea, four. Um, people debate what that means. If I had to put my money on something, I would say that the addition of the numbers actually means something here. Three plus four equals seven. You have an emphasis on the perfection of their, of their sin, which says something to us about the character of our God. God is patient, patient, patient. That is his identity. Exodus 34. He is patient. If God works in a default mode with his people, his default mode is patience. It's kindness. It's mercy. But there is a moment when the patience runs out. I think that's what's happening here in the prophets. And that patience is no longer. It's three plus four. You've perfected it, right? The sins of your unfaithfulness, you've actually perfected. And now I'm going to pour out my, my, my judgment upon you. All right, we're going to have happy words. Hang in, hang in. All right. Um, I wanted you to see something significant. We're just flying through Amos here. But in verses 21 of chapter 5 through 26, I wanted to read this to you because it's quite significant to the prophets as a whole. Listen to what Amos says about their religiosity. Oh, this is going to get... Interesting. I hate, this is God speaking through the prophet, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings, he's going Leviticus on them now, even though you give me burnt offerings and cereal offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted beast, I will not look upon them. 
Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice, can you hear this, you know this verse, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Um, There's a way of reading this, and a lot of scholars go this direction. I won't for multiple reasons. If you want to press me on it in the question time, which we won't have time for, you can. Um, (laughs) I've I've planned that well today. Um, One reading on this is to see the prophets as an organism, as an ecosystem, as a religious historical reality in Israel's midst that stood in direct opposition to the priestly world and and temple religion. They stood in opposition to it. Um, I've mentioned this to you before, but one of my colleagues, Alan Ross, often says, you know, if a priest was, was, it was his day to do the liturgy in the temple and he looked up and saw Isaiah in the court, or he looked up and he saw Micah in the court, he's like, junk. This is going to be a bad day here today, right? Because the prophets often took a position against what we might view as the cultic practices of ancient Israel. So there's one way of reading this, I think, that sees them in direct contradistinction to each other. And if you see it on the surface, you can get it. I hate your feasts. I do not want your sacrifices. Stop playing music for me. Right. Another way of reading this, and I think it's the better way because for other reasons within the framework of the whole of the Bible. Another way of reading this is to see that the prophets are telling us that our liturgy, your worshiping life, the ritual aspects of your religiosity can never be divorced from the totality of the claims of Jesus on our lives. The whole thing. In other words, and we see it in Isaiah, we see it in Micah, I'm going to show you Micah here in a second, we see that the prophets will say, God is not interested in religious observance alone. In fact, if you think He is, just stay at home, right? You really probably would prefer to anyway, right? So if you think your religiosity is doing anything for you, while justice and righteousness is not occurring, then you have misunderstood my intentions for you. Or better, you have not heard me. Right. Now, this is, the, this is the, a constant challenge, I think, for all of us as we read the Bible. And it's why, frankly, the prophets can be a real spur in our happy Christian saddles at times. Right? Because they force us, they challenge us, to think about the Scriptures, about God's Word to us in multifaceted ways. All of us have certain tendencies and certain theological instincts that light on certain things and say, I really like that. That's me. I really do that well. That's me. Whereas the prophets come along and say, God wants you to see the thing from the standpoint of the whole. All of it. So that your outward um, religiosity, which I do not think the prophets would say is wrong. I, I, I genuinely don't believe that. Where does Isaiah encounter the Lord? He encounters them in his own temple. Right? So I think it's significant that we're not playing these things over against one another, but what the prophets are doing are constituting liturgy in its proper place. Liturgy as it relates to the whole of life. Not just something that you do. In other words, the prophets will not allow a compartmentalization of our religion in one silo while we go through the rest of our lives and live as if that silo's there. And I'm doing this, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing that. Here's my academic life. Here's my children life. Here's my family life. Here's my business life. And I do my, my Jesus thing over here. The prophets are saying, if that's what you think religion is about, be aware 
God, well, I'm going to just quote this because I think it's true, God hates that kind of religion. That's why he says in Joel, don't rend your garments. What is he saying there? That's an external religious act. You've seen enough of these old Jesus movies, haven't you? King of Kings and um, Ben-Hur. Do you remember the scene? We, we, what's the one that we all... Is it King of Kings that we watch? I, I love that. Um, is that the one? Is that Zeffirelli's? Is King of Kings? Anyway, you remember the scene when the high priest stands up and he just rips his clothes, right? I mean, it's a scene of out, outward penitence. Outward grievance over, our, over a sinful reality or a sinful, sinful um, activity. And here Joel says, don't, don't do that. Don't just rend your garments. Rend your hearts. It's a liturgy that's connected to the whole of the whole of the person. Um, can I show you Micah real fast? I'm not going to get through all of this. That's okay. Um, I mean, if, if there's a bumper sticker verse in the book of Micah, I mean, I, I, you, you, if there are praise courses that want to find a verse to write something on, it's going to be Micah six eight. I mean, good lands, right? He has shown you, O man, what is good, what the Lord requires of you. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. We know Micah 6.8. But the contextual frame of Micah 6.8 is so significant here because it sits right with what Amos is doing. We're reading Hosea and Joel and Amos and Micah as if these four and five and six and really twelve books are all hovering around these grand central themes. And the grand central theme is God wants your heart He wants the inner person. He doesn't just want intellectual assent. He wants all of you. He wants your heart. He wants you to recognize who you really are and your desperate need of Him. And the people who recognize their desperate need of Him, those are the ones that the Father and the Minor Prophets runs off to before they can even make it to the front porch. The Father's running off the front porch to get them, to run to them. And look at this the beginning of how Micah 6 uh, starts. Oh, I'm just going to go right into verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? And what have I wearied you? Answer me. I've talked about this in a Sunday school class, so I'll be careful here to not overly repeat myself. But this is just a great rhetorical turn of phrase, isn't it? I mean, how have I, how have I wearied you? I mean, how, how, when, I, when I rescued you from Egypt and you know, brought you into the land flowing of milk and honey and I doted on you and I chose you out of a panoply of nations and you were nothing. You're actually kind of ugly. To be honest with you, you're an ugly kid. But I took you and I made you my own and, and now you're mine and I loved you. Why? Because you're loving? No, because, but because I loved you. That's why I took you. Um, so, and all of that that I did for you on account of nothing that you've done for me, when did I actually burden you? When, when did my gracious and kind disposition toward you become a burden. When did that happen? I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. I didn't leave you without teachers. I didn't leave you without leaders. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised. Balaam, the son of Beor, he answered him. I, and this is all about the wilderness wandering. I took you from Shittim to Gilgal. Why? So that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. I did all of this for you so that you would know who I am. And when you discover who the God of the universe is, what do you find? You, def- you find that the God of the universe is the one who's for you. That's who I am. I did all of this so that you could see that. When did that become a burden for you? And then he goes on and he goes right at their heart. 
Because there was an external form of religiosity that was just a part of their cultural normativity. This is how they lived. And here the prophet comes and he says, stop it again. With what shall I come before the Lord? He's being rhetorical here and bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? And here, boy, here's, here's a biggie. Shall I give my firstborn for all my transgressions, the fruit of my body, for the sins of my soul? He's shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord wants of you. Justice, kindness, and walking in the reality of God. I think that's a good way of rendering that. To walk humbly with God. To walk in the reality that God is. I've set the Lord before me, the psalmist says. He is always at my right hand. So here the prophets go right for the heart. The prophets go right to the inside of us to let us see who we really are and to call us again back to the Father who's waiting for you in, in, in gracious mercy and love. We do, Let's put it right down where we need to hear it. We don't find the Father merciful and gracious because He looks at us and He says, you know what? They met their pledge. Or they pledged, right? Um, or the Father doesn't look and say, you know, I'm changing my disposition toward so-and-so because um, they sang so loudly this morning. Right? It's a, I turn my gracious disposition toward them because they see who they are and they recognize that they must return to me. Repentance and faith are flip sides of the same coin. What is repentance? It's the gift of faith. That God gives to us to show us that we've got to turn to Him. And in the turning to Him, we meet His gracious smile again and again and again. This is what happened. I'll stop here. I wanted to make this connection. This is exactly what happens in John chapter 4. Um, you know, I won't read the story, but you know it so well, don't you? Jesus is making His way through. Israel and heading up north, and they need to go through the, the region of Samaria. And his disciples said, "You know, let's, uh, what's a good way of thinking about this? You know, I'm going. We need to go to um, Gadsden, and and uh, well, let's just you know take go around a little bit, and let's miss Boaz. You know, I don't really want to go Boaz or Scottsboro or wherever, some of these snake handling places. Let's miss. You know, let's just go out of the, our way out of there. Um, and, and 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 Jesus says, No, we need we need to go through um, Samaria." And these Samaritans, by the way, lots of scholarly work done on actually identifying who this group is. It's not, not it's hard to know. Um, I think best estimates are that the Samaritans are the leftovers from the northern kingdom. Um, so you remember the northern kingdom was destroyed in 722 B.C. You had multiple deportees and refugees that went to the south and to the southern kingdom. But there were those who still remained in the northern kingdom. And they probably intermarried. They developed their own worship. They identified their own location for worship, not Gerizim. Um, and, uh, and they had their own social identity. They weren't real big on the prophets. And they were real big on the Torah, on the five books of Moses, as constructed within their own interpretive framework. Um, there was just hostility, though, between Judah and Samaria. But Jesus needs to see someone from Samaria. That's just, I mean, again, it, that is huge. Overcoming all of these sort of social boundaries. 
And he goes to a well, and there's a woman, and of course, the fact that it's a woman, and Jesus is talking to her in the middle. I mean, for any of you who've been in Arabic cultures, you realize that that, that's just not something you really do, even today, kind of in an Arabic culture. You're talking to a woman, you, be careful as you move into that. Now here Jesus is at a well, and a woman comes, she's a Samaritan woman, and Jesus asks her for something to drink. That's, I mean, the, the, the iconography on the woman at the well. I mean, you just think of these beautiful paintings of Jesus sitting there, and the woman comes, and Jesus says, can you give me something to drink? And she says, how is it that you, being a Jew, I mean, she gets it, right? You, being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for something to drink. And even the disciples, when they eventually came back, were a bit incredulous toward the whole thing. Uh, Jesus, you know, what are you doing here? We could get you something to drink if you're thirsty. And Jesus says to her, if you knew who was asking, you would be quick to give water because I can give you water that will make you never drink or be thirsty again. We're going to see it in John chapter 7, aren't we? Just three chapters later, where Jesus stands up in one of the great festivals that celebrated the running of the water in the temple. And I can just imagine that right at that moment in the running of the water at the temple, Jesus stands up in their midst and shouts out. That's the, the Greek term there. He shouts out, if anyone is really thirsty, let him come and drink of me. And if you do drink of me, springs of eternal life will well up inside of you. I mean, this is powerful. There's running water. Jesus says, now, see that water there? All that water typifies me. If you drink of me, you will never thirst again. Of course, she's thinking very earthy, as we would too. And she says, well, I'll take some of that water. I hate, I hate lugging these pots around, right? Give me that water. And Jesus said, I am that water. And then she says, Jesus says, well, let me you know, let you know who I am. And he tells her about her life. <laughs> well, this is where, you, you know, where the rubber meets the road. Oh, and by the way, why don't you go get your husband? Oh, Jesus, don't invite him to dinner parties. Really, don't do it. He's, he's going to tear it up. Um, Jesus sitting there, he's not going to be, he's, he's going to ask some hard questions. Go, I'd like to meet your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. You're right, you don't, you've, you've got five. And the person that you're living with right now is really not your husband. And all of a sudden she goes, I perceive you are a prophet. <laughs> right? It's like, well, that's right, good for you, you see it. And then she says, are you, I know that a Messiah is supposed to come. And Jesus says, I am he. Have you ever noticed how she responds to that? I, it, it pricks my own heart because I teach in an intellectual context. I mean, my, I, I pay my bills primarily because I teach students to think critically and abstractly and about theology and about grammar and syntax. I mean, that's what I do for a living. And you know what she wants to do the, the moment she identifies who Jesus is? By the way, the first person to do that as the Messiah, is this Samaritan woman in John's Gospel. And she wants to have a theology debate. Right? First thing she wants to do is, you know what? Um, you all say down there in Jerusalem on, the mount, on your mountain, but we think it's at Mount Gerizim we're supposed to worship. And Jesus is like, uh, 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 I'm not going to chase that rabbit. He said, the time has come where the Father wants worshipers that will worship Him in spirit and in truth. So he goes right to the heart of the issue. It's what the prophets are doing as well. Micah, Amos, Hosea, the totality of them. The Father is looking for genuine worshipers. Worshipers that worship Him in spirit and in truth. In truth and in spirit. I love that collocation that Jesus gives us. Because some of us are heart fuzzies, right? Well, that's great. God wants our affections in spirit. But he also wants the truth. And some of us are kind of cognitive cerebral folks. 
But he wants spirit too. Spirit and truth coming together that recognize our whole persons, our whole persons, are persons that are in need of a Savior. And in recognition of that need, there is freedom. I'm becoming, you know, we do this liturgy thing all the time. But I'm becoming more acutely aware of some of these lines that are throwaway lines. I mean, isn't it wonderful that we have our services? I know I'm the same one. I'm look, my kids have bulletins all over the place, and I'm picking them up, and you know, and then Kathy or Andrew ever comes forward and says, "Go in peace to love and serve the Lord." I mean, that's a really quite powerful turn of phrase, isn't it? Why can I go in peace? Because there's a call to agency, by the way, to love and serve the Lord. We're called to be something and to do something. But how can we go and do that in peace? Because we know freedom. Genuine freedom is the freedom that has identified at the beginning of our worship service, I'm a sinner in need. And and I've confessed it. And then I've been given absolution. And then I've heard the Word. And then I've ingested the Word. And I've actually participated in the Gospel to be reminded that my personal story is really not just about me, but it's me being wrapped up in His story. And then we say these things like, let us go forth and to praise You with our lips and our lives. That's how we can go forth in peace. Because we know the Gospel. Because we know the truth that none of my religious observances or, or works are enough. God wants hearts that are repentant, that are turning to Him. And in that turning to Him, do you know what we're turning away from? Ourselves. And that's freedom. It's freedom from the tyranny of ourselves so that we can love and serve the Lord. It's freedom. Because it's tyranny to love and serve the Lord because I really, really hope He likes me this time. It's tyranny to love and serve the Lord to think, and maybe this time I'll get the prayer right. Maybe this time He'll know I'm really sincere. That's tyranny. But it's peace to love and serve the Lord when you see it all on Him and you know that He is the one who is for you in the person and work of His Son. So Lord, our time is gone, but it's amazing to see how the prophets and the Gospels and really the whole of the Bible that you've given us, this diverse and complex thing. But Lord, it comes together with such force to witness to your grace and to your glory, to witness to your love for us and for your desire that our lives be shaped by the reality that you are for us. Let us know real freedom so that we can love you so that we can love others. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.